0: I'm Graham Smith. We established the Mothers Program to provide a reliable source of information about pregnancy on the internet with the goal to improve mothers' health through education, research and screening. The Mothers Podcasts are an extension of that. Today we're going to be discussing women's cardiovascular health. might sound like a bit of a stretch, given that we're a pregnancy and postpartum podcast and website. But as you'll see if you look further into our website, and we'll hear today, pregnancy and the postpartum, especially if you develop certain complications in pregnancy, can be an ideal opportunity for early cardiovascular risk screening to work towards preventing cardiovascular disease. Our guest today is Carolyn Thomas. Carolyn's the author of the well-received book, A Woman's Guide to Living with Heart Health, published by John Hopkins University Press. You can find it on Chapters in Indigo, as well as Amazon. She created and runs the Heart Sisters website, the blog and the Twitter accounts associated with that, which are all about heart health for women. It's been said that she has the best heart blog on the internet, She is one of the top 10 web influencers when it comes to women's heart health. I've communed with Carolyn as it relates to my own research and clinical work for years and had the privilege of sharing the podium with her when the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada had its annual meeting in her hometown of Victoria, BC in 2018. Carolyn, welcome and thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Graham. It's lovely to be here.
0: So I'm so excited to be having this conversation. Can you start by telling us what led to your interest in heart health and and how you got to where you are today?
1: I like to answer that question by saying that had I not been misdiagnosed in mid-heart attack by a man with the letters MD after his name in the emergency department, I would not be talking to you today or to anybody else about heart disease and specifically women's heart disease. And because this happened to me back in uh, 2008, I've had a very strong interest in uh, trying to learn why women seem to be misdiagnosed far more frequently than our male counterparts are when it comes to heart disease. So that led me to a few months after my uh, discharge from the CCU, I was on the Mayo Clinic website. And along the sidebar, there was a little blurb that said, are you a woman living with heart disease? Apply now to attend the annual Women Hearts Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease at Mayo Clinic. And I thought, I'm a woman living with heart disease. I'm going to apply today which I did. And then a few months later, this was in the old days where they, you got a letter in the mail saying, congratulations, you've been accepted. And it turned out I was the first Canadian heart patient ever to be accepted to attend this four-day, what I call cardiology boot camp at Mayo Clinic. So it was a real thrill for me to be there just to be in Mayo Clinic, which I'd never been to before. So the whole four days that we were there was a life-altering experience for me. And when I came back, I did what the organizers of the training program hoped that we would all do. There were 45 of us in my training class. And what the organizers led by Dr. Sharon Hayes, who is the founder of the Mayo Women's Heart Clinic, her hope was that we would all go home to our respective hometowns and talk to other women about what we had just learned at Mayo. Because they knew that for some reason, women are not getting it. They're not getting the message that heart disease is our number one killer. If you ask most women, they would say that breast cancer is their biggest health threat. So part of our job as Mayo grads, as we call ourselves, is to talk to other women, which is what I've been doing since 2008. I do free talks about women's heart health. I started my blog just to help publicize my talks. <laughs> it wasn't a content-heavy blog back when I started it. So that's basically why you're talking to me today instead of somebody else.
0: Can you tell us about why you wrote your book, started the website, and being such a powerful advocate for women's
1: uh, heart health?
0: There's more than just going to the uh, the Mayo Clinic and them saying, go home and talk to people about it. You took it a step further than that.
1: I did, but I also have a career, a long career, before my heart attack in public relations. And my PR friends tell me that this is just what happens when a PR person has a heart attack. We just keep on doing what we know how to do, which is to speak and to write and to look stuff up. That's all I know how to do. If I had been diagnosed with lupus, for example, I would probably be talking to you right now about lupus. But I happen to have been diagnosed with heart disease, so that's why I'm here. And the book came totally by accident. I I never had any goal of doing that. And I should add that several months after my heart attack, I had a subsequent diagnosis of coronary microvascular disease. This affects the small vessels of the coronary artery system too small to stent, too small to bypass, but still severe symptoms every day chest pain, shortness of breath, crushing fatigue. So I got two diagnoses for the price of one. And I certainly never thought I should write a book about this because I simply didn't have the energy or the ability to do that. Until one day, I was contacted by the executive editor at Johns Hopkins University Press, the oldest academic publisher in North America and they said, we love your blog. Uh, We love how you write. Uh, Would you consider writing a book with us based on your hundreds of blog articles? And my first response was no, because I'm a heart patient with ongoing symptoms, and I know how much work a book is, and there's no way I could possibly do that. And then she said, well, look at it this way. Basically, you've already written the book. Because you can take a couple paragraphs from this article and a couple paragraphs from that article and add them all together. And pretty soon you've got a whole chapter. So I thought about that. I said, well, that sounds easy. So I said, yes. And two years later, the book came out. So n- none of that was planned. It was all because somebody called me and said, what do you think?
0: That's amazing. Go ahead. Give us a pitch uh, for your book. Who, who should read it? I already identified it. You can get it at chapters in Amazon
1: if you order it directly from Johns Hopkins and on my blog, practically under every article, I have a little link to Johns Hopkins University Press where you can use a code and get 30% off your book. And I don't plug my book, it's just out there. And women tell other women, basically, that's how they f- I have a very tiny niche market of uh, readers, <laughs> women with heart disease. I really, I'm not writing for the general public. I'm not writing for cardiologists I'm writing for what I call the freshly diagnosed heart patient who is struggling to get over, to make sense of something that makes no sense. And that was me. I basically wrote the book that I wish I had had when I was newly diagnosed.
0: Before we uh, started, you had emailed me to say that you were uh, just in the process of recording a talk for the Canadian Women's Heart Health Summit. Tell me about that. What are you talking about?
1: Yeah, this is an annual conference that, as the name suggests, is totally devoted to the subject of women and heart disease. So it's a two-day event. It's happening in Vancouver, April 28th and 29th. And it's like the rock stars of cardiology in Canada and beyond in terms of the faculty that will be presenting. And I was invited to speak on a panel discussion about why your patient is not following your advice. Which is a common concern for cardiologists. Well, it's probably a common concern for all medical specialists and doctors, you know, who are doing their best to restore us to health or to increase our health or to make us not as sick as we are. And yet we know that patients are not doing that. But most medications have a 50% dropout rate. So it's, let's take statins, for example, which are heavily recommended for people with high risk for heart disease, 50% of people stop taking their statins within six months, 30% never fill their prescription in the first place. So this is a real issue for physicians and for their patients. And so there's a lot of energy in this question, why aren't my patients following my advice?
0: I think probably having a discussion about that is a whole other podcast. So we'll, we'll leave it there. So maybe you can tell people how we first met.
1: That was a life-altering moment, actually, not when we met in person, because that took a few years after I first heard about you in the New York Times. I just happened to be reading the New York Times, which is not something I do every day. And I caught this article about you and your, I guess this was a couple of years after your 2008 or 2007 paper, and you were talking about pregnancy complications being strongly linked to subsequent heart disease diagnoses. And I almost fell off my chair when I read that. Because I had preeclampsia during my first pregnancy. I had the classic symptoms of preeclampsia. I had headaches. My vision was affected. I had a real spike in blood pressure. And I was only a week or so away. From my due date. So it wasn't a crisis for me. It was like, oh, well, now I get to put my feet up and just relax until the baby comes. And then once the baby comes, I totally forgot about preeclampsia forever. I read about you in the New York Times and the work that you are doing. And I was so gobsmacked by what I was reading because not one person had ever told me that my preeclampsia might have anything to do with my subsequent heart disease. So I contacted you. I was amazed at how easy it is to contact a medical specialist at a university because your email address was right there for me. I contacted you and I said, Oh, my goodness, I think I am the poster child for what you're studying. And then you very kindly responded. And we've been sort of emailing back and forth. I think it was back in 2013, you invited me to speak at a Toronto conference. And once again, because of my symptoms, I said, I can't travel to Toronto. Thank you very much. And so then you called me again and said, how about we do it via video conference. So I was happy to do that and was so inspired that your team of doctors were so interested in this particular subject, including some cardiologists. And then when I met you in person, that wasn't until, was that 2018 in person here in Victoria?
0: 2018, yeah.
1: Because of course I said, yes, I'd love to be on a panel at your conference. And that was a, a real thrill for me personally to meet you and your wife in person.
0: So we've known since the early 2000s that there is this link between the development of preeclampsia, a type of high blood pressure in pregnancy, and an increased risk of future heart disease. In collaboration with my good friend and colleague in Ottawa, Dr. Mark Walker, we, we received funding from the CIHR, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and did a study where we were recruiting women at the time of delivery, if they had had an uncomplicated pregnancy or a pregnancy complicated by preeclampsia to follow on a yearly basis. The question we were asking was, if women with preeclampsia are at increased risk of future cardiovascular disease, at what point after delivery do they develop the risk factors that would lead to the cardiovascular disease? So traditional cardiovascular risk factors would include things like high blood pressure, elevated blood sugar, elevated cholesterol, lipids, increased weight, you know, that kind of thing. So this was the first study to prospectively follow women after delivery to figure this out. What we found was that by a year after delivery, we could already find these risk factors. Not only did we see more women who had borderline or high blood pressure, we saw increases in their weight, their cholesterol, and also meeting the criteria of a condition called the metabolic syndrome, which is a composite of different risk factors, which increase your risk of not only heart disease, but also type 2 diabetes. The fact that these risk factors were already present a year after delivery likely reflects that they were present before the woman ever got pregnant and may have led to the pregnancy complication itself, in this case, preeclampsia. So they were unrecognized or unknown before the woman got pregnant. Pregnancy is essentially a stress test. So if you fail the stress test, for example, develop preeclampsia, it fairly reliably identifies women who have these underlying risk factors. The pregnancy complication itself, They certainly contribute to the long-term risk, the magnitude of which we're still trying to understand.
1: I understand, though, that it's more than just preeclampsia that identifies individuals as being at potentially increased risk. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so research has now identified that there are pregnancy complications that are associated with an increased chance of having unrecognized cardiovascular risk factors, which puts them at higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And these would include not just preeclampsia, but the other high blood pressure disorders in pregnancy, diabetes that develops during pregnancy, delivery of a small or a growth-restricted baby, having a preterm birth, or having what's called a placental abruption that leads to delivery because of the uh, the bleeding.
1: We've talked about your maternal health clinic before as well. You started your clinic in 2010, right?
0: Around the time we finished the original cohort study, we received funding to start what we call the Maternal Health Clinic, where all these women with pregnancy complications are referred for cardiovascular risk screening. We see them at six months, do a screening physical exam, so things like height, weight, blood pressure, waist circumference, as well as blood work for cholesterol, lipids, sugar, a marker of inflammation called CRP, and we look for protein in the urine. And we use this information to calculate the chance of developing cardiovascular disease down the road. About half the people we see in the clinic would be classified as being at high risk of future cardiovascular disease. That is, we find one or more of these risk factors. And half, we don't find any risk factors, so we classify them as low risk. But certainly not no risk. You still have to eat right and be physically active, don't smoke, all the usual stuff. Regardless of your actual risk score... If they've had high blood pressure in pregnancy, as an example, they should have their blood pressure checked a couple of times a year going forward. Similarly, if they had diabetes in pregnancy, Diabetes Canada recommends getting a special blood test called a hemoglobin A1c every couple of years for screening purposes. Those with actual risk factors, though, will be followed for those risk factors longer term.
1: And does everyone that you see come to your clinic?
0: No, and I think it probably aligns with uh, your talk at the Canadian Women's Heart Health Alliance. So unfortunately not. We're just finishing off a review of the first 10 plus years of the clinic, and only about half the people who are invited to come actually come. We've looked at those who don't come, and they're actually a high-risk group, typically young, living with obesity, maybe smoking, low socioeconomic class, that kind of thing. And we've tried a number of things to get them screened, including offering virtual visits, but that has only been of limited success. When I talk with my American colleagues... They're often so envious of our healthcare system where everyone can have access to care regardless of finances or race. I'm always surprised to hear that so many don't actually come to get this screening done. Through your website and media presence, you have certainly been a supporter of us, but also about women taking ownership of their health and advocating for themselves. Any thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, this is a, an ongoing puzzle, I think, for, for lots of us. And, uh, one of the things that caught my attention was something called the peer study, and peer stands for something, I forget what, P-U-R-E. This was a Study that Canadian researchers participated in among uh, 17 other countries, 7,500 heart patients. So these were not like your moms who are at high risk for maybe having heart disease. These people were already diagnosed with heart disease. And the results from their surveys were so discouraging. For example, 18% of these people continued to smoke. 65% did not exercise at all. Over 60% did not improve their diets or change their diets at all. Those are really staggering stats for people who are not being told you might have a heart attack, but people who have already had a cardiac event. So you'd think they would be highly motivated. So one of the things that I, I'm going to talk about next month at the uh, Women's Heart Health Summit in Vancouver is one of the factors, for example, is uh, depression. A person living with depression, and this is new onset depression. This is what psychologists call a situational depression or a stress response to something so overwhelming that it's hard to manage anything. I suffered a depression after my own heart attack, but I thought I was losing my mind. Not one single person had said to me that about 30% of all heart patients will experience this new onset depression. Uh, the European Society of Cardiology a couple of years ago reported that 40% of people who have been diagnosed with heart failure will develop new onset depression and that is independent of the severity of the condition so think about that part of that i believe my my personal belief is that this is a very hurtful word for a doctor to say out loud to a patient your heart is failing is very hurtful and there are a number of cardiologists who are lobbying to change the name we have to change the name of heart failure even though many cardiologists have told me well i have a way of explaining it so that the patients are not horrified like i put little air quotes when i say failure to let them know that i don't really mean their heart is failing well if it doesn't mean that then stop saying that so that's one of the reasons now it doesn't affect your mum specifically but they've just had a baby. And I know what happens when you have a baby. And you once told me this when you were thinking about what age the baby should be when you invite the mums to come to your screening clinic, is that you realize that for the first six months, mums don't think about anything except the baby. They're certainly not thinking of themselves.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. I think one of the areas we've struggled with is getting the information out there not just for the women themselves, but also the healthcare professionals uh, to understand it and ensure that they're offering these individuals
1: screening. That's a big issue, isn't it? So what are you researching right now?
0: Um, I've recently reviewed a couple of articles submitted for publication identifying an increased risk of cardiovascular death within 10 years of delivery, uh, following preeclampsia specifically. Fortunately, the absolute numbers are low, but there is a statistically significant increase compared to an uncomplicated pregnancy. It's important to remember, though, that these are young women, typically in their forties, with a young family. You know, I wonder how many of these deaths could have been prevented if they had had screening done within the first six to twelve months after delivery, and appropriate treatment and follow-up.
1: But as you said, I mean, these tragic tragic numbers, no matter how small they are, as you said, these are young women with young families. With that Mayo Clinic, they told us about a study that had been done on women's priority. Uh, these were specifically heart patients because they were concerned about what. Researchers call treatment seeking delay behavior. And this is specifically in women and specifically in women during a cardiac event. We know that women wait far longer to seek emergency help during a heart attack than men do. And I think this is personally because men have wives who say, that's it, we're going to emerge. Whereas women will say, well, maybe tomorrow, if it's still bothering me tomorrow, or I have to get this project finished, or I have to take the kids to soccer, or whatever. So Mayo Clinic, because they knew that women are engaging in this treatment-seeking delay behavior, they asked women, what's most important to you? If getting help in the middle of a heart attack is not important to you, what is more important than that? So here's what the women answered in the study. Number one, universally, was family, as specifically children, if they had children. Number two was home, how they look, how clean they are. Women take a lot of ownership in their homes. Number three was work, the quality of their work, paycheck, their sense of self-esteem, their workplace relationship, very important to women. Number four, pets. Number five was my spouse, below the dog. And number six is myself. So doesn't that explain a lot about many questions that we have about why are women like this? Why don't women do this? Why don't patients do that? I'm telling them what they should do to get better and they're not doing it. Well, you can see here, they've already got a lot on their priority list that doesn't even include them until everybody else's needs are taken care of. I think that's an important issue to look at.
0: We've been actually trying to think how we can get more people screened. This idea that it's hard to get the information to the women, it's hard to get the information to the the healthcare providers for them to actually do it. And we've recently published an article identifying that If you have a strong family history of cardiovascular disease, you know, or high blood pressure in a first-degree relative, so either of your parents, a sibling, or a child, you have a higher chance of being found after pregnancy, whether you had a complication or not in the pregnancy of having underlying risk factors. Similarly, if you look at all the large database studies, our own postpartum cohort uh, included, and even in the recent cardiovascular death studies, Just because someone had an uncomplicated pregnancy doesn't guarantee that they have no risk. I like to say that low risk is not no risk. In our own data, while half the women with pregnancy complications were found to have underlying risk factors, about a quarter of those with an uncomplicated pregnancy also were found to have underlying risk factors, the most common of which was borderline or treatable high blood pressure. I think that every woman after any pregnancy should have their blood pressure done. For those who have had a baby, I would align it with when you're having their baby checked. So, like at six months, as we talked about. But for those who had a miscarriage, as an example, having your blood pressure checked at six months may give an opportunity to fix something before the next pregnancy if it's a problem and potentially prevent problems in the next pregnancy. The message we should be trying to get out there is that every woman after every pregnancy should have their blood pressure checked.
1: That is so important. And it's so simple, it is so easy. This is another reason I think that we call blood pressure the silent killer. So, if I take my blood pressure medication every day faithfully, I feel fine. If I stop taking my blood pressure medication, I'll still feel fine for decades until I have a stroke or kidney damage or, you know, whatever's going to ultimately kill me because of my high blood pressure. So, it's really tough to convince somebody who feels fine that they need to take this med probably for the rest of their natural life. That's a tough sell. It's much harder, for example, than if I take pain meds for my refractory angina or angina, as Americans say. Nobody has to convince me that I should take my pain meds. Like I, I never leave home without my nitro spray. I wouldn't even consider it because I know how effective it is, and I know that I might need it today. Whereas I don't have that same uh, love affair. <laughs> any of my other meds that I take. And in fact, there is something discouraging to a patient to hear that you have to take this medication for the rest of your natural life. And there are many other non-drug ways to lower that blood pressure, like cutting back on your salt, for example, which is a big issue for lots of people, not just heart patients. At Penn State, they've done some interesting work on what they call medical maximizers and medical minimizers. Fascinating stuff about how there are some people they estimate about 25% of patients will be minimizers. So these are the people who don't like to get screened, they don't follow up with their tests, they don't like to go to the doctors, they especially don't like to take pills, and they'll even tell their doctors, I am not a pill person or I hate taking pills. So if your patient says this to you, I'm just not a pill person. You should pay attention because that person is highly likely to stop taking whatever pills you've recommended for them. The medical maximizer patient is just the opposite. They like to be screened for everything. They'll ask their doctors if they should go in for this test or that test, or their friend is taking this drug and it's working for them. What do you think about putting me on the same drug? So these are the people who will say yes to everything and whatever the doctor tells them, they will follow it religiously, which sounds like it's a good thing, except the researchers suggest that this is where overdiagnosis and over treatment and huge cost to the healthcare system are partially at the feet of these medical maximizers who really like the fact that I'm getting screened and tested and treated for all for just in case, just in case things go sideways. So you've got those two things to think about as well.
0: Any final thoughts or bits of advice to uh, the women out there who might be listening to the podcast or healthcare
1: professionals? I'd like them to take all of your advice. For example, blood pressures is a non-invasive, simple, easy test to do. But I also want to share something with you that I don't think you've seen. And this is in response to one of the several articles that I've written on my Heart Sisters blog about your work and specifically pregnancy complications and its link to subsequent heart disease. And this comment came from one of my blog readers, Andrea. I don't know Andrea or where she lives, but here's what she said in response to one of those articles about pregnancy complications and specifically your work. So Andrea says, I always thought my heart was healthy. I have excellent blood pressure and normal cholesterol. My resting heart rate is low, but I had five miscarriages and preeclampsia in three surviving pregnancies. I need to talk about this to my doctor and find out how I can reduce my cardiac risk. This is genuinely disconcerting. I never knew and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Thank you for publicizing this link. So there's an example for you in this little note from a reader about what an impact your work had when she discovered that there is this, you know, as you said, it's the ultimate cardiac stress test. Uh, so women need to hear this. And when they do hear it and it rings a bell for them, they, it's very meaningful. Well,
0: and thank you for your blog for helping to get it out there. You're welcome. We'll put links to the Heart Sisters website and Carolyn's book and other resources that people might find useful and reliable. Thank you, Carolyn, for taking the time to join us to discuss women's cardiovascular health. I want to thank our guests, as well as Dr. Adelaide Burroughs, who helped to produce this podcast, and for those behind the scenes. We will put links to more information on this and other topics on our website, www.themothersprogram.ca. The Mother's Program is all one word. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for topics or people that we should interview, please use the contact section on our website. Until then, I'm Graham Smith. Be safe.